0: just as the Scriptures come to us, this is the way that God's voice has the authority in His church, is by His Word being preached as it comes to us in the Bible. So we're in 1 Samuel 14. There's 52 verses in this chapter, and a lot of action happens in those 52 verses. Chad read the first half of the chapter for us earlier in the service, so we're going to pick it up in verse 24 and read on to the end. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, "'Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, "'Cursed be the man who eats food this day.'" And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, "'My father has troubled the land.'" See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built. To the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give thumim." And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives. There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malki, Shua, And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, the name of the second, the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now together and ask God to help us to hear His word as we ought. Father, we thank You that You are a God who speaks, that You have not left us in the dark that You have not left us in silence. We recognize, Father, that a great and magnificent evidence of grace is the fact that You have spoken in the Bible. So that to read the words of the Bible is to hear Your voice among us. Oh God, would You help us to hear that voice with faith. Spare us, Father, from the hard-heartedness that ignores Your Word. Spare us from the foolishness that seeks our own wisdom. Give us grace, God, to hear the truth of the Scriptures. Father, keep me from error and grant Your people discernment that we might all be built up in the truth until we attain to mature manhood in Christ, until the day when the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray in His name. Amen. With apologies to Mr. Dickens, perhaps the best way to introduce this chapter is by saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. 1 Samuel 14 weaves together an arresting contrast between success and failure. The passage gives us two perspectives on the same event. You'll remember from chapter 13 that the Philistines have God's people under their thumbs. Israel appears powerless. They are defenseless against their enemies. But in this chapter, things change. Israel fights back. And chapter 14 is the story of their fight told from contrasting perspectives. But what makes this contrast come alive is that it involves a father and his son. The father, of course, is Saul, the king of Israel, and his son is Jonathan who commands a division in Saul's army. The two men could hardly be more different. And therein lies the key. Jonathan's leadership in this battle is a success, while Saul's leadership is one foolish decision after another. You see, Jonathan is the foil to his father's failure. It's the same event, it's the same battle, but told from the perspective of two very different men. And the end result is powerful. By the time we reach the conclusion of the chapter, we see very clearly the dangers of forsaking God's wisdom, of turning from God's Word. Friends, that's the takeaway here for us. While we're certainly interested in all the excitement surrounding Israel's battle, we must not lose sight of the fact that this text speaks to us. This chapter is a living illustration of the difference between faith and foolishness. These two perspectives are side by side. And they force us to ask, which way am I going? Am I walking the path of faith? Or have I turned again to the path of foolishness, which is the natural bent of our own hearts? Which way am I going? Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to change? That's what this passage is asking to us. And you see, this is part of what makes the Bible so compelling and so helpful. The Lord could have simply given us a list that said, don't be foolish. Choose faith. But that's not what God has done. Instead, in His wisdom and in His grace, God has given us a living contrast. A flesh and blood picture that arrests our attention and cries out, don't be fooled, friends! Don't be fooled. God's Word is the only place to find the wisdom for life. Neglecting God's Word will cost you dearly. While trusting the Lord is always the wise way to live. The question then is, which way will we walk? Which way will we walk? In the path of faith or in the path of foolishness? So with that question in mind, let's turn now to the text and consider the contrast between Jonathan and Saul, between faith and foolishness. It begins in verses 1-23 to with the boldness of faith. The boldness of faith. And right from the start, we see the difference between father and son. It jumps from the passage in the first two verses. Notice verse 1. What is Jonathan doing? He's taking action. He's taking action. But what is Saul doing? Verse 2, he's huddled in a cave. The son shows initiative while the father is passive. Still, there's more. How many men are with Jonathan? One, his armor bearer. How many men are with Saul? Six hundred. And one of them is a member of Eli's household. Did you catch that in verse 3? Saul's priest is Ahijah, the nephew of Ichabod, who was the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Don't miss that, friends. Here we have a rejected priesthood serving a rejected royalty. It's a surefire sign that Saul has lost his way. He's turned from God's wisdom. He's lost Samuel's voice. And all he has left for spiritual counsel is the failed house of Eli but we're getting ahead of ourselves. The person in focus in these verses is Jonathan. Jonathan. And beginning in verse 6, Jonathan provides us a stirring picture of what it looks like to live by faith. Friends, this is the positive exhortation of this text. There is much we can learn here. So notice with me a few features of faith from Jonathan's example. First off, faith defies circumstances. Everything is stacked against Jonathan. He's outnumbered. The Philistines have an entire garrison. He has one man. He's badly positioned. The Philistines have the high ground, so Jonathan's going to have to scale a cliff face to get up there. And finally, he has no chance for reinforcements. No one knows what Jonathan is doing, not even his father. So if he gets in trouble, he's on his own. When you put those circumstances together, there is little reason, you could say there's no reason to take up this attack. And yet, Jonathan is not deterred. Look again at his boldness. Verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Clearly, Jonathan's not concerned with the odds. Which raises a question, how is Jonathan able to take such a bold step? I mean, just honestly, this looks risky at best. It's risky. So what is it that compels Jonathan to act? Well, notice the rest of verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Friends, what an excellent example this is of how truth is supposed to work in the Christian life. Jonathan knows some things to be true about God. Jonathan knows his theology. Jonathan knows God is omnipotent, that His power is unlimited, and therefore God can work even when the odds are insurmountable. Jonathan knows God is sovereign, that He reigns over all people in all places at all times. The Lord will work when and where He pleases. He doesn't need the odds in His favor. Jonathan knows these truths, but here's the key. He doesn't just know them, He puts them to work. He puts them to work. He builds his life on these truths so that the reality of God's character makes a difference in how Jonathan lives. This is what truth is supposed to do in the Christian life, friends. This is why Jonathan takes the risk. It's the reason he steps out in faith because his feet are firmly planted on the truth of who God is. Friends, I don't know about you, but... I want to live with a kind of faith that takes risks for the glory of God. As I imagine Jonathan storming that hillside, I find myself thinking, I want to live like that. I don't want a complacent, easy Christian life. I want to step against the impossible. I want to be bold with the message of Christ crucified. I want my life to count for something that will last for eternity. I want to live with this kind of risk-taking faith. Do you? Then we must know the Lord our God. Then we must know the Lord our God. That's the takeaway here. It's not that Jonathan was naturally more courageous. It's that Jonathan knew God to such a depth that the truth became a springboard for bold faith. Friends, the same will be true for us. When we know God deeply, we will trust God boldly. And only then. I'm reminded here of the example of William Carey, the Baptist missionary who helped pioneer the modern missions movement. Carey left for India in 1794. And at the time, there was little impulse among Baptists at least to take the Gospel to the unreached of the world. To go to India in 1794 was a foolish decision, people would say. Slow transportation, poor communication, deadly diseases, and a severe lack of funding. All of those circumstances would say to William Carey, Don't go to India, it's too hard, it's too risky, you're gonna die, do something else. But by faith, Carey took the risk. He took the risk because he knew God's purpose was to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He knew that Jesus died for people among the unreached and therefore God would be with him as he went. God would make a way. It was that truth that compelled Carrie to step out in faith and risk everything to see Christ proclaimed among the unreached. That's the same truth we see here. When we know God deeply, we will trust Him boldly. Friends, may the same be true among us. If we want to make a difference for the glory of God, if we want to have a holy ambition to see the Gospel of Christ reach into the darkest places of just our city, let alone the far reaches of the world, we're going to have to take risks with the Gospel. We're going to have to have this kind of boldness. So may we know the Lord our God May we live with the same kind of faith that defies circumstances with the truth of God for the glory of God. Faith defies circumstances to do what can't be done. That's the first feature from Jonathan's example. But he keeps going, and in verse 8 we see another one. Faith balances risk with wisdom. Faith defies circumstances, but faith also balances risk with wisdom. After his armor bearer agrees to support him, Jonathan proposes a test. It's a pretty simple test. If the Philistines say, we're going to come down to you, then they won't attack. Jonathan won't attack them. But if the Philistines say, you come up here to us, then Jonathan will take that as a sign that he should go forward. So that's his test. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second. I thought Jonathan lived by faith. So how is this test trusting God? To which I would say, remember that faith does not cancel the need for wisdom. You see, Jonathan recognizes that God works through means. And Jonathan's plan is a way of discerning whether or not God is working in this particular situation. It's actually smart military strategy, if you think about it. If the Philistines say, we're going to come down to you, then that means they suspect something is afoot. But if they say, hey, come up here to us, then they've let their guard down. They're going to let Jonathan do the hardest part of the battle, which is climbing the sheer cliff face. They're going to let him do that unhindered. So you see the wisdom of Jonathan's strategy? He's ready to take the risk. He's ready to step out in boldness, but he balances that risk with a clear application of wisdom to discern, is the Lord in this? Friends, what an instructive moment this is for us. By all means, let's be Christians who live with bold, risk-taking faith. We need more churches and more Christians like that, especially in our day of anemic, complacent Christianity. We don't need less risk, we need more. But at the same time, let's also remember that risk is not the same as reckless. Reckless ignores God's wisdom. Reckless ignores that God works through means. Reckless acts as though we're God and the fate of God's kingdom rests on us. Friends, that's not faith. That's not boldness. That's pride masquerading as faith. Even here with Jonathan, notice in verse 6, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. So do you hear the humility? Jonathan's ready to act, but still he submits himself to God. He seeks to discern God's wisdom before he acts. Brothers and sisters, the same should be true for us. This is why God has given us the scriptures and his church, so that we might depend on those gifts to discern his wisdom. We don't make up tests like Jonathan, his situation was different than ours. Instead, we study the Bible and we ask other brothers and sisters what they think about our plans. That's how we're called to live. With that same kind of balance. Ready to risk for the glory of God and at the same time, humbly seeking to discern God's wisdom through the means He's provided. Faith balances risk with wisdom. One more feature from Jonathan. The passage keeps going and the outcome of his plan gives us the final feature. And this is arguably the most Significant. Faith magnifies the power of God. Faith magnifies the power of God. The Philistines aren't worried about a couple of Hebrews, so they taunt Jonathan. Verse 12, come up to us and we will show you something. In other words, the Philistines think they're about to teach these Hebrews a lesson. They won't forget. But in reality, those are the last words these Philistines will ever speak. Look at verses 13 and 14. In a short span of time and in a small space, Jonathan and his armor bearers strike down 20 Philistines. It's a spectacular victory. But then something even more spectacular happens. Notice verse 15. Confusion breaks out, the earth shakes, and the Philistines are overtaken with a very great panic. Now, catch that phrase, a very great panic. That phrase is loaded with significance. And as has often been the case in 1 Samuel, we have to go back to Deuteronomy to see why. I told you a few weeks ago, Deuteronomy is where it's at in the Old Testament. And it's so true. You've got to go back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord promised His people that when they trusted Him, He would fight on their behalf. Listen to what the Lord said. But the Lord your God will give your enemies over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. So this is about more than Jonathan's victory. Twenty Philistines struck down by two Israelites is incredible. But what's more incredible is that God has shown up and that He's fighting on behalf of His people. As the Philistines scatter in every direction, God's people should recognize that the Lord is in their midst and He is fighting for them. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verses 16-22. to The Philistines' confusion gets the attention of Saul and his army. And eventually, though it takes a little while, they join the battle as well. Even the Israelites who had deserted and those who had been hiding in the hills come out to fight. It's a staggering turnaround. This powerless, defenseless people are now taking action, and it's all due to the Lord's power that is so clearly on display. And so, Jonathan's example of faith reaches its climax in verse 23. Notice what the text says. Verse 23. So, the Lord saved Israel that day. Friends, that's the ultimate fruit of Jonathan's faith. It's put God on display. By trusting the Lord, Jonathan has shown the people once again the character of God. His power, His faithfulness, His sovereignty, His mercy. Friends, this is why faith is so valuable in God's kingdom. Because it puts the spotlight on God. Our trust in the Lord shows the world what He is like. When we walk by faith, we testify that God is trustworthy, that His ways are good, and that His presence satisfied. Faith puts God on display. And therefore, friends, we should never underestimate the magnitude of simply walking by faith day in and day out. I'm afraid many Christians are convinced they cannot do significant things in God's kingdom because they don't have a large platform or they don't have the the opportunity to accomplish some big thing. Don't believe that lie, brothers and sisters. That kind of thinking is a scheme of the evil one. To discourage Christians from embracing the high calling of walking by faith day in and day out. If faith puts God on display, then there's no higher calling than living by faith, regardless of your position. None. So don't grow weary, brothers and sisters. I know many of you are facing long roads and weary seasons. And I know that for some of you, those seasons seem to have no end. And they may not end. But, but remember this, dear Christian, as you travel those weary roads by faith, the Lord is honored. When you trust Him on the Tuesday morning, when you can't see how the ends are going to meet again, when you trust Him on that morning once again, He's on display. Your daily faith in Him is not insignificant, not in the least. It might not seem exciting. Very little about my life seems exciting. It might not seem exciting like Jonathan's victory in this chapter, but the impact is no less significant. Daily faith is a mighty testimony to God's power, to God's glory, and to His grace. And so, very simply, I just encourage you from these verses, don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap a harvest. Remember that faith, even in all its smallness, magnifies the power of God. Friends, what a powerful picture of faith Jonathan has given us. Even more, what a powerful reminder of the God in whom we trust. You know, I can't help but wonder what kind of king Jonathan might have made. As you read the story of his life, it just does kind of draw you to that question. What kind of king would Jonathan have made? He has all the qualities of a godly king. In fact, that's kind of his role in 1 Samuel is to be similar to David to show you that God's not concerned about your physical lineage, but about your heart. What kind of king would Jonathan have been? Sadly, We don't get the answer to that question because Jonathan doesn't get the opportunity to serve and it's because of his father's failure. So as encouraging as Jonathan is to us, we now have to turn our attention to his father, King Saul. And in verse 24, the passage shifts. I think verse 24 would be helpful if it had the word meanwhile at the beginning. Meanwhile in another part of town. We see the second perspective on Israel's battle, and this is the cost of foolishness. Jonathan gives us the boldness of faith. Saul gives us the cost of foolishness. Honestly, friends, these verses are, are not that difficult to interpret. The, the key to this second scene is straightforward, and it comes in verse 24. Notice what happens. Israel has fought hard all day so that the men are worn out. But Saul senses an opportunity for personal vengeance, right? Let's keep going until I avenge myself on my enemies. The Philistines have humiliated Saul, and now he has the chance to turn the tables. So Saul foolishly places an oath on the people No one is allowed to eat anything until the victory is total. That's Saul's oath. And understand this is not a suggestion from Saul, this is a binding oath sealed with a curse. If you break this oath, then you will die. It's that serious. But it's also foolish. And the author goes to great lengths to show us why. You see, this is where the contrast between father and son becomes startlingly clear. Jonathan took a risk in order to serve others, Saul puts everyone else at risk in order to serve himself. Notice with me the cost of Saul's foolishness. It happens over and over. The cost of Saul's foolishness. To begin with, Saul risks his men. They're tired. They're hungry. They need strength. And yet Saul denies them the very strength they need. And why? Because he's more concerned about getting vengeance over his enemies than he is about caring for others. But that's what foolishness does, friends. It blinds us to the needs of others so that all we see is ourselves and our little kingdoms. Saul risks his men. Saul also risks his son. Notice what happens in verse 27. The army is passing through a forest dripping with honey. That's supposed to make you think about the promised land. right? This is God's good provision. There's honey just dropping from the trees. This is what the men need. And Jonathan does what any tired soldier should do. He reaches out and he eats from God's good provision. And as you might expect, his strength comes back. He's ready to fight. But there's a problem here, isn't there? In tasting the honey, Jonathan breaks his father's oath. To be sure, Jonathan didn't hear the oath. He was too busy actually fighting the battle. But sadly, that doesn't matter. Saul is the king. So even if you break the oath in ignorance, it invites his punishment. Saul risks his own son. Saul also risks the battle. Notice verses 29 and 30. The men tell Jonathan what Saul has done. And fittingly, it's Jonathan who gives us the verdict on Saul's action. Look at what he says. My father has troubled the land. That word troubled is used throughout the Old Testament to describe an action that brings harm to God's people. Do you remember the story in Joshua about Achan, who kept some of the goods from the city of Jericho for himself, even though he wasn't supposed to. And then the next battle Israel lost. Do you remember that story of Achan? This same word troubled is used to describe Achan. So Saul is in the same category as Achan, the fool. It always brings harm to God's people. And the harm here is that Israel's victory is lessened. If the men had eaten freely, then their triumph over the Philistines would have been even greater. Saul risks the battle. Saul also risks the worship of God. Notice verse 31. When the men can finally eat again, they're so hungry that they sin against God by eating meat before the blood has been properly drained. This is clearly prohibited in the law in the book of Leviticus. It wasn't a hard command to figure out, and it's not a hard command to follow. But that's the fruit of Saul's folly. He's driven his men headlong into sin. It's true, Saul attempts to remedy this situation by building an altar, but even then, things don't seem quite right. Notice verse 35. This was the first altar Saul had built. And it just leaves you wondering, was worship not a regular aspect of his life? The first altar? He's become a stumbling block to his men. Saul risks the worship of God. And then finally, Saul risks his own leadership. Notice verse 36. Though it's the end of the day, Saul wants to keep the battle going through the night, but then something curious happens. When Saul seeks the Lord's guidance, he gets no answer. Silence is not good in the Old Testament when you ask for God's counsel. It means there's something wrong. Some sin has been committed. And as we might expect, Saul assumes it's the people's fault. Don't miss that. Saul refuses to even consider his own role in this mess. He doesn't stop for a second to say, maybe it's me. Instead, he summons everyone to this high stakes casting of lots. Saul thinks this will reveal the truth. And the truth does come out, but it's not what Saul expects. It's not the people who have broken the oath. It's Saul's own son, Jonathan, the champion of the battle. And still, Saul is not deterred. Instead of slowing down, which would be the wise thing to do, Saul invokes another oath. This time he swears by God that he will kill Jonathan as you're reading it, you're supposed to get this sense of this is out of control. Mercifully, before Saul can do this, the people step in. They too invoke the Lord's name, but they swear by God that they will save Jonathan. Friends, do you see how upside down Saul's kingdom has become? Here you have the people intervening against their king. It's entirely upside down. Saul is losing control. That's what we're meant to see here at the end. He's isolated. He's perpetuating chaos. He's already lost Samuel. He tried to get rid of his own son who's the only brave man in the army. And now he's losing the confidence of his subjects. Saul's leadership is at risk because of his own foolishness. What a mess this is. What a mess! But you see, that's the point. That's actually the application. Saul's life is a sobering reminder of what happens when we forsake God's wisdom to go our own way. It might not seem like much of a problem at first, but over time, the cost compounds. One foolish decision becomes another, and then another, and then another, until we've lost control. I can't help but think back to verse 3 at the beginning of the chapter. Who is present in the cave with Saul? Ahijah, the priest in the rejected line. But even more telling, who's not present with Saul in the cave? Samuel, the Lord's prophet, who brings the Lord's Word. Friends, do you see that? Saul's trouble began when he turned his back on God's Word. That's the takeaway for us. God intends this mess of a scene to drive us back to His Word again and again and again. God's Word is the only remedy for our natural tendency to go our own way. I'm not saying we're better than Saul. I'm as much of a fool as he is. What I am saying is that God uses His life here to call us to listen again to His Word. So, friends, I have have to ask you, are you depending on that Word? Are you regularly listening to what God has said, and by grace, are you seeking to submit yourself to Him in faith? If not, then like Saul, you're starting on the path of foolishness. And the cost of that path is more than you want to pay. It's more than you want to pay. Listen to the Scriptures this morning. How many times have we seen this so far in 1st Samuel, the importance of God's word. Listen to the scriptures this morning. None of us can navigate this life on our own. We are naturally foolish, hard-hearted, ignorant and blind. We need the wisdom of God's word. There is wisdom in the scriptures. There is life, there is insight, there is counsel Friends, there is no Christian life apart from living in submission to God's Word. Ask God this morning to renew your desire to depend upon His Word. Don't neglect that first step of asking Him. The Lord Jesus says we have not because we ask not. And before we say what that doesn't mean, why don't we say what it does mean? That we should pray. Ask Him. To renew your desire to depend upon the Scriptures. Take the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Whatever was behind me, I forget and I'm pressing forward. Ask him to renew your desire to live upon God's Word. Ask him for the grace to obey where he calls. Saul's life shows us the cost of foolishness. But more than that, it's a call to us to embrace the blessing of living under the Word of God. I pray that's a call each of us will answer in faith. After Saul's foolishness runs its course, the chapter concludes with a summary of Saul's reign. This is typical king material. It's a record of Saul's exploits and his family. And on the surface, this summary makes Saul look like a success. Look again at verses 47 and 48. Saul leads Israel to victory over a number of foes. So maybe things weren't so bad with Saul after all. I mean, he seemed successful, at least from the world's standards, but that's just it, isn't it? The Lord's standards are different than the world's standards. Saul can win all the military battles that he wants, but without faith, those victories are hollow at best. And so here at the end, we return once more to the contrast between Jonathan and Saul. Their lives remind us that God's kingdom does not follow the ways of this world. That God's economy doesn't work the way we think it does. Jonathan never reached the throne of Israel. But his life of faith reveals his significance in the kingdom of God. Saul won battles and reigned as king. But his foolishness tells us that he missed the most important kingdom of all. The kingdom of God. You see, it's really the turning point in the book. God is not looking for outward achievements. He's not looking for outward achievements. He's looking at the heart. Specifically for hearts that trust Him and walk by faith in His Word. So, I return to that same question that I asked at the beginning. Which way are you walking? Which way are you walking? In the path of foolishness or in the path of faith? Brothers and sisters, may we fix our eyes on God's kingdom the kingdom where His wisdom reigns supreme. And may our lives bear the marks of faith in our sovereign God who has saved us from our own foolishness through the work of His Son. Amen. Let's pray.